Welcome to the Carbon and Cows podcast, brought to you by Washington State University and University of Idaho. This is Nina Gibson. In this podcast series, I dive into topics related to carbon markets and where dairy and livestock producers in the Pacific Northwest can play a role. Each episode, I interview an expert working at the forefront of this rapidly evolving landscape. From engineers to economists, we go into some of the nuances of existing and emerging regulated and voluntary carbon programs and different aspects of project development that may impact their long-term economic success. Let's get started. In this week's episode, I interview Dr. Frank Mitloner. Dr. Mitloner is a professor and air quality specialist in cooperative extension in the Department of Animal Science at UC Davis. Frank is also director of the CLEAR Center at UC Davis. The CLEAR Center brings clarity to the intersection of animal agriculture and the environment helping our global community understand the environmental and human health impacts of livestock. Frank is passionate about understanding and mitigating air emissions from livestock operations, as well as studying the implications of these emissions on the health of farm workers and neighboring communities. In addition, he is focusing on the food production challenge that will become a global issue as the world's population grows to nearly 10 billion by 2050. Frank received a Master of Science degree in Animal Science and Agricultural Engineering from the University of Leipzig in Germany, and a doctoral degree in Animal Science from Texas Tech University. Frank was recruited by UC Davis in 2002 to fill its first ever position focusing on the relationship between livestock and air quality. In this week's episode with Dr. Frank Mitloner, we discuss California's dairy industry, the top milk producing state in the country, and the mandate that was issued in 2016 for their dairy and livestock industry to take voluntary action to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions to 40% below 2013 levels by 2030, or face direct regulation from the state. The mandate that was established under Senate Bill 1383 calls on the California Air Resources Board in consultation with the California Department of Food and Agriculture to adopt regulations geared towards the state's dairy and livestock industry if their greenhouse gas reduction target is not met. Since the mandate was issued in 2016, roughly 200 anaerobic digesters have been installed on dairy farms within the state to help meet the industry's greenhouse gas reduction target. According to a report by UC Davis's Clear Center titled Meeting the Call and co-authored by Dr. Frank Mitloner, the dairy industry has the tools to potentially achieve climate neutrality by 2030, exceeding the goal of the mandate through dairies adopting other on-farm practices in addition to anaerobic digesters, including feed additives that inhibit methane from enteric fermentation alternative manure management practices such as advanced solid separation technologies and converting a facility from flush to scrape, as well as through projected reductions in livestock herd sizes over time. In this episode, we discuss the response to this mandate the state's dairy industry has had, including anaerobic digesters and where the prospects of utilizing enteric fermentation inhibitors is currently at in terms of helping the industry meet their greenhouse gas reduction target. Frank also gives considerations for dairy anaerobic digester owners and discusses the implications this technology can have for a dairy farm that will apply regardless of where the digester is operated.
Okay, Frank, welcome to the podcast. We're really excited to have you on with us today. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. So to start us off, can you give a little background for our listeners as to what all prompted the installation of, from what I understand, nearly 200 anaerobic digesters on dairy farms in California from 2016 to 2021, and how state and federal incentives might have played a role in their development? Yeah, so it all started with a law uh, called SB or Senate Bill SB 1383. And this uh, Senate bill here in California mandates a 40 or 0, 40% reduction of methane to be achieved by the year 2030. So that's a few years from now. Um, and that 40% reduction must be below 2013 levels. And so at first, our producers were very shocked. I have to say it that way, because a 40% reduction is uh, unique in the world uh, and not easy to achieve. And so they then reached out to people like me and asked, well, what kind of technologies, what kind of approaches can be used to reduce 40% uh, methane? And in particular, the law stated that these 40% shall occur for manure sources. It also said um, that enteric emissions, meaning the methane that's belched out by animals, is not covered. But if you cannot achieve the 40% reduction with your manure alone, you may use other mitigation. So mitigation, let's say, from enteric, enteric or other sources. And so um, the farmers then asked, um, so what technologies make most sense? And um, we quickly arrived at anaerobic digestion as a main technology. And that is pretty much the capping of lagoons. Um, so imagine you have an open lagoon. Now you put a top over it. And over time, you see it bulging out. What does bulge out is biogas, 60% or 60 60% of which is methane. And that biogas is then cleaned, cleaned up, and made into pretty much pure methane. And methane, you have imagine, you have to imagine as being um, pretty much pure energy. So you can convert this methane and make it into power, electrical power, or you can convert that methane and make it into fuels. And the latter is what we do in California. We take this biogas mix, make it into renewable natural gas, and then use that renewable natural gas as fuel for heavy-duty trucks and buses. And for those who do that, they receive credits, carbon credits, called low-carbon fuel standard credits. And these uh, low-carbon fuel standard credits, as well as federal room credits, run so high that uh, this whole thing is um, is very well um, um, perceived from a cost perspective and from a revenue perspective. Farmers make money by doing what I just said. Thanks for that background there. That's super helpful. My next question, Frank, is anaerobic digestion technology has implications for a dairy farm beyond just reducing greenhouse gas emissions from manure storage. From my understanding, much of the nitrogen in a dairy's nutrient stream becomes more plants available as a result of anaerobic digestion, so there is less organic nitrogen in the nutrient profile, which has some implications for air and water quality. I'm curious how manure management and farming practices have changed at these dairies in California as a result of these digester projects. Can you share any insight on that? So an anaerobic digester does not really change the nutrient profile of the animal manure. So if you have a waste stream, a manure stream, let's say a lagoon uh, water that is not treated, um, then most of the nutrients that are contained therein are similar to the nutrients contained in the digestate coming out of a digester. But what does change? So first of all, what does a digester do? It extracts the energy out of the manure, uh, and that's the methane. Um, but secondly, it converts 
the nitrogen form. It makes the nitrogen um, more into the form of, or converts the nitrogen more into the form of ammonia. And that ammonia is uh, more plant available. So if you take the digestate and apply it at agronomic rates, meaning at rates that, that crops can take on when those crops are ready, um, then that's a good thing. But if you apply that digestate to land that's not ready for nutrient uptake, let's say you apply some lagoon water uh, out of season, um, then you have an environmental concern because that ammonia can become airborne and be an air pollutant. An air pollutant. Um, the, the ammonia can also convert into other nitrogen compounds like nitrous oxide, which is a very potent greenhouse gas. Um, or it can become a water pollutant, uh, nitrite, and then later nitrate. And um, don't think that these are small issues. These can be significant issues, uh, particularly in areas that are strained for water quality, for water pollution, for air pollution, like the Sour King Valley of California. So here we have to really carefully think, how do we best take advantage of the positives of digesters without running into unintended consequences, such as nitrogen pollution? So we have to be more cognizant of what happens to the nitrogen when we have a digester. Because, and I just want to repeat myself, the nitrogen that comes out of the digester, out of the so-called digestate, um, is in a form that can become an environmental pollutant more readily than the undigested uh, lagoon water. Yeah, that's super important there. Um, my next question is, I am curious how producers in California feel about anaerobic digesters now that they've had quite a bit of experience with them over the last several years. There's quite a few of them down there. What's sort of the general attitude now that they've gained some experience operating them? So we've had a, and I don't exaggerate here, a gold rush in California as a result of uh, the digestive technology uh, being supported by the state. Um, the state has provided initial capital funds to those dairies that decided to go the digester route. Um, and farmers have readily um, jumped onto this bandwagon and uh, and many, well over 200, have, um, have installed these digesters. Um, there can be quite lucrative. Um, initially, when the low-carbon fuel standard uh, credits first came out, they ran very high, about $2,000 per cow per year. That's approximately half of the revenue that a dairy farmer makes from the milk. So we're talking about a significant additional income from producing that fuel for vehicles. Um, that low-carbon fuel standard credit has gone down since. It's no longer that high but it's still high enough and it's guaranteed to those who install the digesters for 10 years. So there's a planning um, um, safety there for the producers um, so that things don't just change quickly on them. Mm. I would say that the vast majority of people who have uh, put in a digester have not, have not regretted and many others are trying to, uh, to jump on this, uh, this technology as well. In my opinion, Within the next five years, uh, at least half of California's cows will produce manure that will end up um, becoming some kind of a utility, such as um, fuel for vehicles or power forms. Okay. And as follow-up to that, Frank, are there any specific hurdles uh, or challenges that dairymen in California are facing right now as a result of having implemented a digester on their farm? Yeah. So, first of all, a dairyman uh, generally is specialized in animals and taking care of animals and producing a food, food item. And they are not uh, power plant uh, engineers and, and so forth. So, most dairymen leave that to the professionals, to those uh, people building digesters, maintaining them. And I would highly recommend that. 
Um, because if anything goes wrong, um, believe me, you are not uh, trained to run an operation like this that produces a lot of um, high energy gas. Uh, that gas needs to be dealt with. Um, I would leave that to the professionals. I would work together with a company that does it professionally. Um, unintended consequences, yes, there can be. For example, um, one of the first adopters of digest te technology here in California uh, about 10 years ago called me over to his dairy and said, uh, I could theoretically produce one megawatt of, um, of power, but only produce 300 kilowatts. Uh, can you help? Can you see what the problem is? And, uh, and I took samples of the feedstock going into his digester, meaning everything that he feeds into it. And then the digestate coming out of the digester, and I, I thought I was uh, making some kind of a mistake because I found a very high percentage of inorganic material going into the digester. And, uh, you know, when you do the analysis, it comes out as ash. So that can be anything that's not digestible. That actually went into it. And the number was 40%, 40%. what went into his digester was not digestible. And so he said, well, what could this be? And I said, well, my number one guess is sand. Do you have any, is there any way here on your farm uh, where you could include a lot or introduce a lot of sand into your digest? And he was not aware of one. But sure enough, um, it was a huge amount of inorganic material going in there. And so he asked me, what do you think the problem is? And I said, I think your digest is full of sand. And so he told his uh, his engineers about it, and they they thought this guy from UC Davis might not know what he's talking about. The dairyman then asked, well, what do you suggest, Frank? And I said, well, since you asked, I would suggest that you drain the digester, you open it up, and you look inside. I know that's quite an exercise, but that's what I would do if I were you. A week later, he called me and said, Frank, you've got to come to my place. And I went, and I climbed up and looked over the rim, and this thing, it was a tank digester, was halfway filled with sand. Halfway, 12 feet of sand inside the digester, covering all mixing equipment, all uh, jets, all um, everything inside. And so uh, it is very important to think about these things need to be cleaned after a while. Okay. So if you don't have one of those tanks, but you have a covered lagoon, then that means you have a liner at the bottom and you have a cover on top. So how do you clean those things? That's an unanswered question. None of these companies has ever answered that to me, but I am still waiting for an answer because uh, these things can fill up with sludge. The sludge is not digestible. How do we clean these things up after 10 years or so? Okay, that is some great insight there. Thank you. Next, I am curious about the farm scale in California that these digesters have been installed on so far and if smaller scale farms might be looking to implement anaerobic digestion technology if they have not done so already. Yeah, so <clears throat> the question is always, what is the economy of scale? And that's the question uh, for people installing a robot system for milking cows or uh, buying uh, lot tractors or so. Um, the economy of scale with respect to a digester is such that you must have something like 2,000 cows uh, to produce enough of a feedstock to make this thing pay pencil out. Um, so most of the dairies here in California that have gone this route are 2,000 uh, cows and larger. Um, those dairies that are smaller might pool their manure with neighbors with the so-called up-and-spokes approach where you might have a centralized digester that is supplied by numerous surrounding dairies that are smaller in size than 2,000 cows. So that, that is an option as well um, to have community digesters. But 2,000 seems to be um, the sweet spot of um, producing enough um, manure to uh, supply a digester that is uh, economically feasible. Okay, that makes sense. Shifting gears a little bit here, 
Reports from UC Davis say that dairymen are going to further reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and meet their reduction goals through feed additives that inhibit methane that's formed from enteric fermentation. And for our listeners, enteric fermentation is the digestive process in ruminant animals that produces methane. It's sometimes referred to as belching and what enables cows to contribute to methane emissions in addition to their manure when it's stored in anaerobic conditions. Anyway, can you give us an update on the status of this work and if there is one particular additive that is close to becoming commercially available right now? Yeah, before I go there, I just really want to uh, quickly mention that the digesters, that the digesters that have been um, installed here in California have achieved about 30% of the reduction goal for methane so far. So um, our, our dairymen have not been sitting on their hands. They have been working very aggressively on reducing um, manure-based methane. Now, recently we conducted a feed summit here at UC Davis. We had a great attendance of about 400 people um, from agencies such as the California Resources Board, the USDA, the Food and Drug Administration, FDA, as well as uh, you know, going all the way up to the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations from Rome. So we had uh, all of those folks uh, along with uh, NGOs uh, like Environmental Defense Fund and so forth. We had the industry, particularly the dairy industry in high attendance and of course academicians. And why were all these people there? They were there to um, answer or to get answers to that same question that you just asked. What kind of feed additives are there? How do they work? Uh, how far are they with respect to being market ready? And at what point shall producers use them? So first, good news. There are uh, feed additives that really do the job of reducing enteric methane. Um, there's also a lot of snake oil out there, so producers be aware. Okay, there are many people who say, "Oh yeah, yeah, we have done university research and we have found 30, 40, 50 percent reductions." If you hear that kind of um, statement, then ask for the publications. If they don't have publications, then that's just hot air. Okay, there are some there are some additives that have been studied in dozens of studies. For example, one, probably the more the most prominent one, uh, it used to be called 3NOP, now it's called Bovair. Um, that is a that is an additive that will be on the market in the United States, marketed by the company Elanco next year. They will have FDA approval, Food and Drug Administration approval, that is, next year, and they will be on the market. Bovair is a methane inhibitor. So what it does is it doesn't change the microbial composition in the rumen, but it inhibits those so-called enzymatic steps that are needed to form methane. One of those enzymatic steps is inhibited and therefore methane not formed. If you feed a little bit, you reduce a little bit. If you feed a lot, you reduce a lot. That is one feed additive, as I said, that will be market ready next year. There are some others that are oftentimes tooted, and I'm somewhat more cautious around them. For example, seaweeds. Um, you might have heard about red seaweed from Australia, New Zealand. Um, it has a similar route of action as Bovair, um, but it is so it's also a methane inhibitor. It's effective in reducing methane, but it has some unintended consequences that I think need to be studied first before anybody jumped on it or should jump on it. For example, toxicological questions. And that means when the cow digests those additives, then um, theoretically some toxins could result. And uh, we must make sure that these levels, these concentrations are at acceptable rates. And so we are not at a point yet where we can say feeding seaweed um, will always be safe for the animals and or, most importantly, consumers of these animal products. That has to be studied first and foremost. But 3NLP, Bovair, 
and seaweed are uh, in one complex of feed additives. Then there's another complex called rumen modifiers, and they actually do change the microbial composition in the rumen. And these are things such as essential oils or tannins or nitrates and so on. And these um, have relatively smaller reduction potential, uh, around 10, 15% or so. But the advantage of those things is um, you don't really have to go through lengthy approval processes in many cases because they are some byproducts of some natural vegetation, let's say some tree bark or some oregano or garlic extract or so. What all of these additives have in common is they will have to, if they want to make methane claims, they will have to go through an approval process. And the FDA has not approved any of them. So you cannot go into a store right now, buy a feed additive that reduces methane and claim that you're doing that. None of them legally is allowed to make methane claims yet. And would you say the 3NOP product is looking the most promising so far? Well, I mean, I can't make any kind of advertisement or so, but from a scientific perspective, that is a feed additive that has been published, I think, close to 50, 50 times, okay, 50 publications on this on this molecule. And, uh, and it is very effective. I know that. Uh, the question always is this. Not just are there additives that work, that's, of course, one precondition, but why would producers use them? So which producer do you know who says, yeah, I'm going to buy something that comes at a significant cost to reduce methane if you're not forced to reduce methane, if there is neither a stick nor a carrot for you to use an additive? In other words, if there's neither a fine for not using something or some kind of incentive, we have to have some kind of incentive system for farmers to make these kind of financial decisions to buy these things and feed them to cows. And currently, uh, thankfully, California is thinking along those lines of um, how can we install a voluntary incentive-based approach to feeding feed additives to cows to reduce emissions. Yeah, there is a lot there, a lot of different implications. Um... Nina, I want to say one more thing, uh, and I think that's also important. I have asked the California Air Resources Board, which is our highest state agency, whether or not farmers at this point should feed feed additives to reduce methane considering that we have the law on the books that mandates a 40% reduction to be achieved in six years. I asked them, shall our farmers use feed additives at this point? And the answer I got was no. And I said, please clarify, why, why do you say no? Thought our farmers need to reduce methane at a very um, uh, fast rate. And they said, because of the issue of additionality, and let me explain real quick what that means. Additionality means that if you are an early adopter and you do something 10 years ahead of time before you are mandated to do so or before there's regulation, then this practice, having done this practice, um, does not count, but it is considered the standard practice that you've always done. So once something becomes mandatory, you cannot say, oh, I've done this the last 10 years. It doesn't count under the principle of additionality. And so this is why the Air Resources Board said to me, no, we would not encourage farmers to do it yet before we make it uh, not mandatory, but before there's some kind of uh, rule regulation or so in place. So right now, it's good, it's good to watch it, but don't do anything as of yet. Okay, that's some great insight there. You know, we've talked a lot so far about dairy, I am curious what the beef cattle industry in California is doing right now in response to the mandate to reduce their emissions and participating in renewable fuel programs. Are they looking at anaerobic digestion technology at all or any other type of practice that would enable them to reduce their emissions as well? No, I think the beef industry is, is much further behind. 
um, they are watching this, but in my opinion, they are they are um, wondering whether or not uh, there will be um, much focus on them. I think they they believe that the dairy industry is the one that uh, they will take the the brunt of it. I don't think that to be true. I think the beef industry will have to reuse just as much, uh, not just as much, but uh, just as well as the dairy industry does. The agencies first focus on the dairy, um, on the dairy industry because it's much larger here in the state than beef, but they will definitely focus on 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 beef later on as well. What are the ways, though? That's the question. What are the ways that the beef industry can reduce? Because the majority of the beef carbon footprint occurs on pastures. Not in feedlots, but on pastures. 80%, 8-0 of the beef carbon footprint is associated with a mama cow and, and with the cow-calf operations. And about 10% with commercial feedlots. So in feedlots, you could theoretically feed feed additives in the future. But what do we do with grazing animals? And here... There are some encouraging developments. I'm um, just back from traveling really the world, and one of those places I traveled to was New Zealand and Australia. And uh, here they have developed a bolus, which is a capsule that you lodge in the rumen of those animals and slowly releases a methane-inhibiting compound. Uh, and it's quite effective in reducing methane over the long run. You don't have to apply this every day, but once every six months, and it dissolves in the room, and after six months, it's gone. The bolus itself is gone. So that's one approach. Another approach, which I find very interesting, is that of breeding for methane. The dairy industry um, is at a point where there are companies that, that sell a genomic test, and that test can be done with any cow, and you find out whether a cow is a high or low methane-producing animal. And as a result, you can then focus on only using low methane-producing cows for breeding purposes. And that means that in the relatively short term, you can have a low methane-producing herd. Whether you're on pasture or whether you're in the barns, you can have a low methane-producing herd. And that, to me, is hugely attractive. It's already reality on the dairy side. On the beef side, I hope that we'll have EPDs, expected progeny difference uh, tests for methane in the years to come. And last not least, the New Zealanders are working on a methane vaccine. Imagine that. You give an animal a shot, and then you don't have to worry about methane. Wow. Yeah, I don't think I've heard of that before. That's fascinating. Okay, well... There is definitely a lot to chew on there. Um, I'm going to take us into our next question. Recent research suggests if the population of ruminants and their production levels remain constant over the next 10 to 12 years, we could achieve a steady state regarding methane production. This suggests that ruminants might no longer be considered a significant source of climate pollution. If that's the case... Are there still opportunities to improve their impact on the climate or even local air quality through strategies such as improved manure management or reductions in enteric fermentation? Yeah, so this is an excellent question. Um, I've been member on a United Nations FAO uh, task force to describe the unique uh, nature of biogenic methane. Uh, and not just describe why it's unique, why it's different from other greenhouse gases, but also how we can quantify methane appropriately because um, some serious changes have happened over or uh, in what we know about not just how this gas is produced, but also how this gas is naturally destroyed. Um, and then the report describes how to mitigate it as well, how to mitigate this gas. So... Um, what's really important to know is methane as a greenhouse gas is produced by rice, by cattle, by swamps, and so on. Um, and while it's in the air, it's a potent greenhouse gas. Uh, it's a, almost 30 times more potent in trapping heat from the sun as a molecule of CO2. So it is a high potent in how it traps heat, 
But the good thing about methane is um, it is not just produced but also destroyed. And that makes it have a short lifespan of about one decade. And what that means is that if you have a constant source of methane, let's say a constant cattle herd in a given county or so, if you have a constant source of methane, then an almost equal amount of what is produced is also being destroyed through a process called hydroxyl oxidation. If you slightly reduce methane by 0.3%, by 0.3% per year, then you do not add additional warming to our planet. If you reduce methane by more than 0.3%, then you are replenishing less methane than is naturally destroyed. And that means if you reduce methane by more than 0.3% per year, let's say by 1% per year, then you reduce warming. And uh, that's really what I'm after. I'm not telling our farmers uh, you know, just maintain a constant emissions, but I'm encouraging them to reduce emissions. And the stronger they reduce emissions, the more they can become part of a climate solution. If our farmers were to achieve reductions like they are now mandated here in California of 30-40%, then that would lead to a strong reduction of warming impacts from the sector. And that means not just will they themselves not add additional warming in the foreseeable future, but they will undo some of their historical warming contributions. This is not some kind of greenwashing or creative accounting, but this is um, us accounting for the fact that this gas is not just produced but also destroyed in an appropriate way and helping farmers to find out at what point in the future they can be climate neutral, because that's when it's really about not adding additional warming and even go further reducing warming through strong mitigation. And I think that's really what we should do. And we can do it through manure treatment. We can do it through feed additives in the future. We can do it by improved soil carbon sequestration. Um, and I'm proud that I'm part of that. And I will work with our farming community in the years to come to find ways that are cost-effective, yet um, also highly effective in, in reducing that particular gas. Okay, excellent. Thank you for going into that. Um, I think it really helps bring a lot of perspective to this issue here. Another thing I want to discuss are alternative manure management practices as a way of helping dairy farms meet their mandated greenhouse gas reduction targets. Uh, things such as advanced solid separation systems and converting a facility from flush to scrape. How do you think those practices are working so far for producers? So I have studied uh, those so-called AMMPs, Alternative Manure Management Practices. The state of California contracted with me, and I studied six different ones um, with very mixed results. In theory, there are different types of alternatives to digesters that could work. For example, improved solid separators. Okay, so... Uh, screen separators, uh, weeping walls. There are others, you know, technologies that separate the solids from the liquids and therefore reduce the so-called volatile solids in the manure stream. Volatile solids, VS, are the substrate that becomes methane. So by separating that out, we can manage it better. Theoretically, that's possible. The problem is that... Um, Companies that pretend or that uh, propose that their technology can do it oftentimes um, try to minimize costs. And instead of implementing the technology in the proper way, they're cutting corners. For example, uh, there's a technology called a weeping wall. Imagine a weeping wall being... Uh, a containment facility for manure uh, where you have mashed fencing as sidewalls. You put the manure into the container and the liquids can seep out through the mashed 
sidewalls, okay? That's why they're called weeping walls. It's one way of separating the liquids from the solids of manure. Weeping walls are very effective, but you have to have several cells so that you can put the manure of, let's say, February into one cell, of March into the next cell, of April into the third cell. And by the time uh, you are coming around again, the first cell should be dried out and all the manure should be out. Oh, sorry, all the liquid should be out. But the problem is, some of the weeping wall installations I've seen in California now don't use three or four or five cells. They use one cell because it's cheaper. And so they're just putting the manure on top of the old manure, which is at the bottom, so that nothing ever dries out. That's not a proper way of installing this kind of technology. That's cutting corners and that's not doing the job. And I've seen countless examples of companies cutting corners and that must stop because that is a waste of everybody's time and effort and money. And uh, I think alternative manure management practices have a place, but they must be designed and constructed according to engineering specs. And if they're not, then they are a waste of time and a waste of money. Yeah, that's an excellent point. Um, cutting corners to save on costs, as well as just not utilizing the system correctly, can create some issues in both the short and long run. I'll give you one example. Um, one of those alternative manure management practices that I studied was a really nice screen press. Um, so that's a way of separating the solids from the liquids. Uh, it was uh, designed well, it was uh, implemented well, but because there's no stick and no carrot in running this thing, the dairyman said, you know, I'm, I only run it for two months out of the year. Because for me to run it, I have to turn some motors on. They use electricity. Why would I waste my electricity if it doesn't come at any advantage to me financially to reduce emissions? And so I only run it two, two months a year. Well, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make sense. We have to think about this, um, the emission picture in a way where we have markets and these markets reward people to reduce emissions. Much like if you were to buy an electric car tomorrow, you might get a tax credit for that of 7,000 or $10,000. Why do you get that? You get that to be, to have an incentive of making that switch. Okay. Um, we have to have these kind of incentives to our farmers as well. Uh, we also have to have some kind of market mechanism. Um, to make reductions of emissions um, something that they can pay for. Right. I, I think you bring up a very real scenario for producers in that these systems aren't just costly to install, but they are also costly to operate. So governments using a carrot approach, if they're trying to modify these on-farm practices, will probably be beneficial for producers. Okay, Frank, given similar carbon offset and renewable fuel incentives in other Western states, including Oregon and Washington now, what do you feel that we can learn from California's experience in reducing greenhouse gas emissions from livestock industry? So I think there are quite some positives that we can learn from from what has happened here. Um, first of all, when I look at the whole picture, I generally see throughout the world a cane approach being preferred, and that means rules, regulations, fines, maybe taxes, to force farmers to reduce emissions. California has chosen a different approach, the carrot approach, which is a voluntary incentive-based approach. What I have observed in places like New Zealand and Ireland and the Netherlands and other places is that the cane approach has failed. That farmers respond very negatively to being forced to reduce emissions uh, through fines and taxes and so on. 
Um, I have not seen one single place in the world where the Kane approach has worked. I have, however, very carefully observed that the, the carrot approach here in California has worked and that our farmers are flocking um, to stand in line to implement these technologies that reduce emissions. Why? Because we have a market mechanism that pays them for doing so. So they can be green while staying in the green. Because you cannot be green when you are in the red. Because you can't go bankrupt over, over reducing your emissions. And we are talking about some technologies that have the potential for you to go bankrupt, okay? So nobody wants to install something that costs millions um, and then flipping the, the, the bill by themselves. That's just not, uh, it's just not doable. So um, I think the other states should look very carefully into the market approach that California has deployed. And, um, but also be aware that there are significant criticism. Okay, it's not that everybody is happy about something like anaerobic digesters. The uh, the industry is, the agencies are, some of the NGOs are not, non-governmental organizations are not. They think that these technologies favor only large large farms and that they do not do the same for small farms. And that's true if you uh, can't really have a digester um, by being a dairy with 300 cows or so. Um, but you have to be 2,000 plus cows, then it favors your large competitors. So that's where they criticize this. So just know it's not all hunky-dory. There, there's criticism as well. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for lending that insight there. Um, definitely a lot that can be learned from California's experience so far. Well, Frank... Before I let you go, is there anything else you would like to add that you feel we haven't touched on today? Well, I have to tell you that I feel bullish, no pun intended, um, <clears throat> by seeing what we have achieved already. Okay, We have uh, recently, two of my colleagues, Ermis Gabriab um, and, uh, and myself, um, well, a total of three of us have uh, written a report called Meeting the Call, um, and that's available for free on the internet. It shows um, the situation here in California, the law that's behind all of that, uh, how the agencies positioned themselves, how the industry responded to it, and how we will achieve um, a goal that was unthinkable um, in the past um, to being reached. Uh, we will achieve the 40% reduction. We will actually exceed it um, through a voluntary incentive-based approach. We are well on our way to achieving it. We are well on our way to becoming climate neutral as a dairy sector, meaning not adding additional warming. Um, our critics think that this is greenwashing. They think that this is creative accounting, but it's not. It is the result of reducing a gas that is viewed as a significant problem by some, and I can see it being a problem, but only a problem if we ignore it. Methane can be a significant solution in situations where we mitigate it aggressively. Methane is nothing other than the gas that you use to heat your home or that you use to cook your food. Uh, who in their right mind would say that's a problem uh, gas? No, it's a, it's a utility that you utilize. However, it can become a problem if you just off-gas it in the air. And that's what you don't want to do. If you just off-gas methane into the air from your manure storages or from belching animals, then you're losing energy. That's the same as leaving your windows and doors open in the middle of winter and letting the heat that you pay a lot of money for escape through those open uh, windows and doors. Nobody would want to do that, but we are doing just that on our farms right now. Unknowingly, but we are doing it, because when that methane goes off, energy goes off. So let's learn how to preserve that energy, how to not let it go off um, through open lagoons, uh, how to not let the energy that we feed to our animals 
uh, go off as unwanted enteric gas, but uh, reduce it so that we preserve energy. Okay, really excellent closing thought there. Frank, it has been a delight having you on. I learned a lot, and I know that I'll be re-listening to this episode myself quite a bit. Uh, Thank you so much for your time today. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Join us next time on the Carbon and Cows podcast, where I speak with Dr. Jordan Shockley, Professor of Agricultural Economics at the University of Kentucky, where he lends his expertise in voluntary carbon markets and how these markets are becoming more relevant in agriculture as the demand for sustainably sourced products from consumers grows. Putting pressure on agricultural supply chains to implement sustainable and climate smart technologies on farm. See you then. Thank you for listening to the Carbon and Cows podcast. You can subscribe to the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting platform so you never miss an episode. For articles or links to resources mentioned in the podcast, as well as our contact information, please see the show notes. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission to support dairy and livestock industry. So please rate and review the podcast or reach out to us through email if you have any questions or if there are topics you would like for us to address in future episodes. The Carbon and Cows podcast is produced by the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources at Washington State University. Editorial oversight and technical content expertise is provided by Georgine Yorgi, Marcos Marcondes, and Shannon Nybergs from Washington State University, and Hernan Tejeda from the University of Idaho. Aaron Whitmore provided production assistance. Other podcasts in the series are available at the Center for Sustaining Agriculture and Natural Resources website, csanr.wsu.edu.